One of the most fascinating things about this Denisovan discovery is that while they were discovered in Siberia, their DNA presently survives in the highest proportion several thousand kilometers south of Siberia in, of all places, Australia and Papua New Guinea. This is Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Ryan Watkins. And I'm Doug Lay. Today, in episode 98 of Parsing Science, we'll talk with Jao Teixeira from the University of Adelaide about his research exploring why genetic evidence preserved in modern human genomes suggests that at least one additional hominin group likely inhabited the islands of Southeast Asia at the time when anatomically modern humans first arrived 60,000 years ago. Here's Jao Teixeira. Hi, my name is João Teixeira, uh, and I'm a population geneticist uh, at the University of Adelaide. Uh, I was born in the city of Porto in Portugal, which is perhaps better known for port wine. Uh, but ever since I was a kid, I, I was fascinated by the natural world. And I asked a lot of questions that my parents indulged. <laughs> and by year 12, I knew that I wanted to study evolutionary biology. And so I did my undergrad in biology and then a master's in forensic and population genetics at the University of Porto. Um, and after I finished my undergrad and my master's degree, I moved to Germany, where I enrolled in a doctoral degree at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology. And I was interested in more like a, a broader scale view of uh, human evolution. So I studied uh, how balancing selection, which is a type of natural selection that is quite sort of cool and weird, <laughs> maintains advantageous genetic diversity for millions of years in, in human populations, but also in chimpanzees and gorillas and so on. And some of these variation actually segregates in human populations since the common ancestor of humans and chimpanzees. And that's sort of my, my research in Germany. Um, after that, I had a quick uh, postdoctoral position in Institut Pasteur in France, uh, where I moved to in 2016. But I wanted to do something different. I had a colleague of mine who invited me to go to Australia. And so I'm in Australia since 2017, uh, trying to understand a human arrival to the continent uh, of Sahul, which is Australia and New Guinea, which was until very recently were united due to lower sea levels. And so I, I wanted to understand uh, when and how did humans get there. That. Probably the best known of the early anatomically modern human species are the Neanderthals. However, other groups of hominins have existed since the genus Homo first departed Africa about 60,000 years ago. Our knowledge of these groups has come about because of scientists' direct examination of early human fossils. But recently, we have also been able to extract and sequence DNA from some of these ancient bones. So we began our conversation with Joao by asking him to tell us more about the breakthroughs that have enabled his work into another group of archaic humans, the Denisovans. So the study of human evolution had, you know, until the 21st century, had been exclusively done by looking and comparing fossils of different species or different groups of humans in the world. And so we had a really, really good surprise in 2010 when um, Svante Pabo and colleagues sequenced the DNA, the entire genome, from a piece of a phalanx from the pinky finger that was found in a cave in Siberia called the Nisifa Cave. Now, as you might understand, it's very hard to morphologically characterize any uh, human group or species based on a fragment of bone that is as tiny 
as a little portion of, your, of the pinky finger. So when Pabu and colleagues did the DNA from that uh, finger bone, they found something that was quite spectacular. They realized that this DNA belonged not to a modern human, not to the Neanderthals, which they had sequenced um, some years before, but to a completely new uh, human species or hominin species, which they called the Denisovans, because that's where the piece of bone had been found. The DNA of the Denisovans showed that they are a sister group to the Neanderthals of Europe. So they most likely represent the closest extinct relative to the Neanderthals um, back in the time that modern humans left Africa. So now we know that not only Neanderthals were living in Western Eurasia, but there was another group, a sister lineage to the Neanderthals living in Eastern Eurasia. And we also found out, uh, which is quite amazing, that modern humans interbred with both of these groups. And I think that's quite fascinating because the Nisevans now represent the first species to have ever been described solely based on DNA evidence, which, you know, brings up many, many interesting questions about what are the fossils that might represent the Nisevans, right? Because now we have the DNA, but because we just have a fragment from a pinky bone, we can't really tell what the Nisevans look like. So that's, that becomes really interesting. Present-day Aboriginal Australians are known to have the greatest concentration of Denisovan DNA. So Ryan and I wondered if this means that the size of the Denisovan population grew in number, as well as if they interbred or admixed with other species of hominids as they made their way into Seoul, the technical name for the continent comprising mainland Australia, New Guinea, and neighboring islands. So one of the most fascinating things about this Denisovan discovery is that while they were discovered in Siberia, their DNA presently survives in the highest proportion, several thousand kilometers south of Siberia, in, of all places, Australia and Papua New Guinea. And it's estimated that present-day populations from Sahul, Australia, New Guinea, uh, harbor, you know, at least 4% of the Nisevan DNA. So what is interesting is that populations in East Asia, for instance, have a much lower proportion or amount of the needs of an ancestry as compared to Aboriginal Australians and, and New Guinea Highlanders, but also uh, compared to any other population living east of Wallace's Line. And so Wallace's Line is one of the world's uh, strongest geographical barriers for faunal dispersal. It's what caused the separation between marsupials and placental mammals, for instance. And it's composed of a strong uh, maritime current between the Philippines and different Indonesian islands. So it's east of Borneo and Sumatra and just west of Sulawesi, for instance. And so you have this big maritime currents, which makes those islands never been connected by land. And so has worked for, you know, several hundred thousands of years as a strong uh, geographical barrier. What we do know is that there are other uh, human groups that have survived in some of those islands. So we have humans leaving Africa around 60,000 years ago, moving to Eurasia, uh, admixing with Neanderthals in Europe and perhaps the Middle East, moving east to Asia and admixing with Denisovans. And recent genetic studies have shown that that happened at least twice. Then they move south through island Southeast Asia, crossing Wallace's line into Australia, 
where present-day populations have the highest Denisovan ancestry. But now you have Denisovans living in Siberia, Neanderthals living in Europe. So how is it possible that the populations in the world that have the highest Denisovan DNA are found so far away from the location where Denisovans were firstly described in Siberia? And how is it possible that Asian populations have a much lower Denisovan amount? So this is the kind of questions we were interested in. Present-day Sahol has the highest diversity of fossils for human evolution outside of Africa. This includes other lineages of early humans in addition to the Neanderthals and the Denisovans. So we asked Joao to tell us more about the various hominins that were present in East Asia, as well as what we've learned about them. So you have Homo floresiensis in the islands of Flores. They are known as the hobbits because of their diminutive size. You have Homo luzonensis, which are also a small-sized hominin in the Philippines. And you have a long presence of Homo erectus fossils in the region, dating from at least 1.5 million years ago, give it or take. Now, the origin and the phylogenetic placement of Homo luzonensis and Homo floresiensis in particular remains a mystery. These two species were found just in the last 20 years. So Homo floresiensis was first described in 2003, and Homo luzonensis was first described in 2019. So until recently, we had no idea that these two species uh, existed outside of Africa. Now, of course, there's different theories that were put forth to the emergence of these two groups, in particular of Homo floresiensis. And the main ideas are that maybe they represent a radiation out of Africa from an earlier lineage of Homo, perhaps before even Homo erectus left Africa, that made it all the way from Africa to island Southeast Asia to Flores, crossing Wallace's line, and then evolving separately on the small island of Flores. So that's one hypothesis. The other hypothesis is that Homo floresiensis represents a evolution of Homo erectus within a tiny island, which means that severe morphological transformations might take place. And so when you compare the morphology of the small-bodied Homo floresiensis, it looks very different from the fossils of Homo erectus that you find in the region. Now, you have these Homo luzonensis and Homo floresiensis. They survive at least until 60,000 years ago. That's very, very close to the arrival of modern humans in the region coming out of Africa. Homo erectus fossils, the last dating is more or less around 100,000 years ago. So maybe they, they went extinct earlier than the arrival of modern humans. But it is also possible that maybe they have been contemporary of modern humans. So now you have this very intriguing scenario where you have different species or groups, let's call them groups of humans, living in different islands in island Southeast Asia, for which we can only speculate kind of thing. We can mostly speculate about their origin and their phylogenetic placement in regards to modern humans, but which are believed to represent deeply divergent groups from the modern human lineage. Homo erectus, for whom only a moderate resolution phylogenic tree was identified just a few weeks ago, may have split from anatomically modern humans around two million years ago. And in the case of Homo floresiensis and Homo lucinensis, maybe even longer ago than that. 
While all three groups were present in the region when modern humans arrived about 60,000 years ago, how do we know that these archaic humans admixed with early anatomically modern humans? We'll hear what Zhao has to say after this short break. This episode of Parsing Science is brought to you by Figshare, a free-to-use cloud-based platform for storing and sharing your research outputs. Upload your tabular data, images, 3D scans, videos, and more to Figshare to get credit for all your research. And if you're a fan of podcasts, check out Figshare's podcast, School of Batman, where we ask academics to use their research to help Batman fight crime. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to Parsing Science. Here again is Zhao Teixeira. The modern human populations that currently live in the region have the highest signatures of these enigmatic Denisovans, this mysterious species that we find only in Siberia. But we have no DNA from these fossils of Homo floresiensis and Homo luzonensis. So we don't know what their DNA looks like because we were not successful in trying to obtain DNA from these fossils yet. Right? Not yet, maybe in the future. But now this raises really important questions. So if modern humans interbred with the Nisevans in island Southeast Asia, as is indicative by the high amounts of the Nisevan ancestry in present-day populations in the region, that means that at least another species or another group was present around the time modern humans arrived. So maybe in island Southeast Asia 60,000 years ago, you had Homo floresiensis in Flores, Homo luzonensis in Philippines, Homo erectus in Java, incoming populations of modern humans, and, who knows, the Denisovans. If that's the case, it's possible that, as modern humans admix with Denisovans, they've also admix with Homo floresiensis and Homo luzonensis populations, or even Homo erectus, which in that case should leave a signature of this deeply divergent ancestry in modern human genomes. That is not the Denisovan signature that has already been found. Right. So that was the motivation for our study. In contrast, if we don't find evidence for this deeply divergent admixture, then maybe it was either not possible, right, or it didn't leave you know, any, any descendants, no, no descendants survive until today, or these guys are actually the Denisovans and we just haven't matched their morphology to what we think the morphology of the Nisevans should look like. The problem is, who knows, really, what the Nisevans are supposed to look like. We only have a finger bone in the Niseva cave and a piece of a jawbone found in the Tibetan plateau, which was not even identified as the Nisevan until we had proteomic studies done on that jaw. So we don't really know how diverse these Denisovans were, both from a genetic point of view, and we have some idea that at least two groups of Denisovans interbred with modern humans. We also don't know how morphologically diverse they were. Because DNA sequences for Homo floresiensis and Homo luzonensis don't yet exist, scientists have previously had to rely on the archaeological and fossil record of their migration. But in 2019, Joao published a study which determined the genetic content present in modern-day populations east of Wallace's line, including that of many hunter-gatherer groups. So we asked him to explain how this present study dovetails with his earlier research into genomic signals that could be interpreted as originating from other hominin groups present across Wallace's line. What we did was we used this uh, method that was developed by other researchers 
that allow you to detect signatures of admixture with so-called archaic humans. So they allow you to detect pieces of DNA surviving in present-day human populations that you know were inherited by Neanderthals or Denisovans. So what you do is that you basically fish out, uh, you look for regions of high divergence between populations living out of Africa and populations living in Africa. And the reason why you do this is because these admixture events are supposed to have occurred out of Africa, right? So humans moved out of Africa into Eurasia, they had mixed with Neanderthals in Europe, they had mixed with Denisovans in Asia and in island Southeast Asia. So present-day African populations should not carry those signatures. So under that assumption, what this method does is it excludes the variation that is observed in African populations today, and it looks for a nexus of genetic variants that are not seen in Africa, and that might represent these admixture events with Neanderthals and Denisovans. So it's important to remember that Africa, as the cradle of humanity, has the highest amount of genetic diversity of anywhere on the planet. So diversity that you see outside of Africa should be a subset of that seen in Africa. The major exceptions to this are uh, those genetic variants that are associated with interbreeding events with other groups of humans or other species. So we apply this method. And then what we've done was within the regions that were detected as introgressed or inherited from these archaic groups, Neanderthals and Denisovans, we matched those regions to the Neanderthal genome and the Denisovan genome, and then discarded them or put them aside. Because what we wanted to look for was evidence of something else. So a more deeply divergent hominin group that had it mixed with modern humans, but for which we currently have no genome available, right? So if we don't know the sequence, our best guess is to detect these unusual regions and then estimate whether these regions are divergent enough from the modern gene pool of, of humans and is compatible with that mixture with deeply divergent uh, species, namely Homo luzonensis, Homo floresiensis, or Homo erectus. Right, so this is what we wanted to test. Did humans interbreed with any of those groups in island Southeast Asia, assuming that the morphological interpretations are correct and they represent deeply divergent hominin groups? So that's what we tested. So just how could the admixture of DNA from Homo erectus, Homo lucianus, and Homo floresiensis in contemporary human populations be identified since Zhao didn't have access to the biomolecular sequence for the first of these groups, nor reference samples for the latter two. The way we looked for these signatures of superarchaic introgression or admixture, so admixture from a deeply divergent human species, was by employing this hidden Markov model. And this hidden Markov model, what it does is that after you exclude all the genetic variants that are seen in Africa, because these events are supposed to take place outside of Africa, it looks for regions of the genome with uh, a nexus of mutations that are in what we called linkage disequilibrium. So these are mutations that are seen close to each other in the genome. So they are likely part of the same ancestral segment. And the way we did this was by employing this method in a 1,000 base pair um, sliding window. 
So the way the genome sequencing works is that you chop, for each individual, you chop the DNA in small fragments. That allows for massive parallel sequencing of the DNA. So you obtain an entire human genome, which is comprised of more than 3 billion nucleotide bases. And so what you have to do then is that you have to take each of these pieces and map it back to the reference genome. So it's like uh, building a puzzle. So you start basically, the way it works is that you start with a given probability for each window in the genome, for each 1,000 base pair window in the genome, you start with a given probability, right? That's how the hidden Markov model works. So the probability of being a human is 98%, and the probability of being an archaic uh, sequence is 2%. And we've assumed this based on the proportion of Neanderthal ancestry in modern human populations, which is around 2%. So then that's, that's our starting probability. So we say, you know, if you randomly look in the genome, what's the chance that you're going to end up finding, say, a Neanderthal chunk? Well, that's 2%. So we started with that probability, right? So then there's a particular transition probability, you know, that we give the method. So the method is going to use a particular transition probability in the sense that it starts searching, right? And it goes 1,000 base pair at a time um, sequentially, right, in the genome. And then it has a particular probability of transitioning from the human state to the archaic state. Right? But it does that after it being trained on the data itself. So you actually tell it what it should be looking for. The region that's sampled around base pairs, the building blocks of the DNA double helix, is called a neighborhood, with the individual positions within the neighborhood called neighbors and a specific neighborhood that is enriched in mutated sequences compared to the reference distribution of base pairs is called a mutation motif. So, by taking each of the genetic fragments and removing those that match the Neanderthal and Denisovan genomes, Joao then looked for signatures that could indicate that the genetic signals were coming from a super-archaic source. And it worked. So the first thing that we observed is that the proportion of the different fragments that were not Denisovan and Neanderthal did not significantly differ between different modern human populations worldwide, as would be expected if there would be a specific event of admixture with a specific modern human population. So we find no no such thing. What we do find is that the populations that have the highest amount of known archaic ancestry, which is Denisovan and Neanderthal ancestry, have a slightly higher amount of this residual sequence that we obtain after we filter the Neanderthal and the Denisovan fragments. So this is already indicative that perhaps there's a correlation between how much Denisovan and Neanderthal you have and how much the method is detecting of this residual sequence, which should make you suspicious that this is a true superarchaic signal, right? Just because previous studies have not identified this as Neanderthal or Denisovan, and we do not identify these segments as Neanderthal Denisovan, it doesn't mean that it might not represent Neanderthal and Denisovan segments that, you know, uh, include genetic variation that has not been captured in the Neanderthal and the Denisovan genomes. So how do we test this? We can then look at what we call mutation motifs within each of these segments. So that's, that, that was our strategy. And so what these motifs should look like is the following. Because of the higher divergence between Homo erectus and modern humans as compared to Neanderthals and Denisovans and modern humans, we expect that if, if there was admixture from Homo erectus into modern humans, you would have 
populations harboring that ancestry, within those segments, you would expect positions, nucleotide positions, so positions in the DNA, where the receiving individual, so the individual with the superarchaic or homo erectus ancestry, would have a variant, a genetic variant, that would be different from Neanderthal, different from Denisovan, and different from African populations in a higher proportion than expected if these segments were either inherited by Neanderthals and Denisovans or just due to the result of, you know, a failure in our method. Because you expect that, you know, along the branch of Homo erectus, you have two million years where mutations could accumulate that would not be seen in modern humans, Neanderthals, and Denisovans. And then you have a bit more divergence accumulating on the human Neanderthal and Denisovan branch. So you'd have a, an excess of these mutations accumulating, and you should be able to detect this in these segments. And we don't. <laughs> that's, the, that's the cool thing, or, or the sad thing, is that we don't detect any motifs. Uh, when we look within these fragments, these residual fragments that are putatively integrated from Homo erectus, we found no mutational motifs that are compatible with admixture from a superarchaic source. Now, if you take that observation with the observation that the amount of residual sequence is correlated with the amount of Neanderthal and Denisovan sequence or, or ancestry, then this favors the hypothesis that what we were actually detecting is some Neanderthal and Denisovan ancestry that was not possible to, to disentangle. Megafauna are large animals of a geological period greater than some threshold weight. And since the island of Sulawesi lies east of Wallace's line, separating Sahul from Java, Bali, and Mindanao to its west, it has both larger Indo-Malayan placental animals, as well as Australasian marsupials. Although it's not central to the paper, we were interested in learning Zhao's thoughts as to whether larger animals may have also predated the arrival of anatomically modern humans in Sulawesi, but that they hunted them to extinction after their arrival. So we don't really know, but no megafauna heavier than 60 kilos survives in Australia. Uh, you have the kangaroos, obviously, these are the largest. But in the Philippines, you have buffalo, you have pigs, and you have deer. The only other island east of Wallace's line that harbors megafauna is Sulawesi. And Sulawesi also have uh, endemic buffaloes and pigs. And we know from stone tool records that Sulawesi had a history of human-like occupation for perhaps 200,000 years. But human-like, right? Because modern humans haven't arrived until much later, perhaps 60,000 years ago. So we know that some form of archaic uh, humans have also lived in Sulawesi prior to the arrival of modern humans, and that's based on stone tools. We know that megafauna survives in Sulawesi. So now the hypothesis is, if you have the islands where you have pre-modern human occupation and you have survival of megafauna, maybe what happened is that some of these species got habituated to the hunting pressures imposed by the archaic hominins prior to modern human arrival. So if that's the case, when modern humans arrived in the region, those islands have animals that are much better equipped to sort of survive the hunting pressures of modern humans. Now, 
If that's true, and there's several assumptions here, obviously, this is just a possibility, that would explain the survival of megafauna in the Philippines, where you have Homo luzonensis, the survival of megafauna on Flores, where you have Homo floresiensis, and the potential for another group of hominins to be found in Sulawesi, where you do have the stone tool record that predates modern human arrival, and you have the survival of megafauna. So it's possible that if Homo floresiensis, Homo luzonensis, and Homo erectus either one of them or the three of them or two of them or whatever, if they do not represent the Denisovans from island Southeast Asia that had mixed with modern human populations in the region, then we still have to find the fossils correspondent to the Denisovans in the area. So Sulawesi is a very interesting place to go look for it. Given the many recent developments in archaeogenetics over the past 30 years, we asked Joao which of the superarchaic groups, Homo pluricensis or Homo luzonensis, he would most want to have sequenced if genetic material were discovered. If we could obtain DNA from Homo pluricensis or Homo luzonensis or Homo erectus or the late surviving Homo erectus that we know survived until at least 100,000 years, it would be extremely uh, big and extremely important, regardless of the result. Because, first of all, we would now have a genome which we could directly test admixture in a much more fine detail. But also, we could maybe have a big surprise <laughs> awaiting. And maybe these, these groups are not as divergent as people assume they are. But yeah, I would say that the most, if I, if I would have to choose <laughs> one individual uh, for which I would like uh, ancient DNA to be done, um, that would be Homo floresiensis. It would help tremendously. But what I would be also interested in, you know, in, in an ideal world, we would have uh, genomes from different time points across different geographical regions, and we could actually test what's going on in terms of population history. Pretty much what we do with human evolution over the last, you know, uh, 30,000 years or so, uh, mostly done in Europe so far where you can look at the patterns of replacement and admixture between different human groups in the last, as I said, in the last 30,000 years ago, it would be very interesting to have something like this for the archaic humans, obviously. But that's, I mean, <laughs> that, that's really a dream at the moment. To wrap up our conversation, we asked Xiao what he, as an evolutionary and population geneticist, thinks that researchers in other fields might borrow from his approaches to conceptualizing research projects and collecting and analyzing archaeogenetic data. I think the great thing that it's emerging from archaeogenetics or ancient DNA research or population genetics um, coupled with ancient DNA and archaeology is precisely the intersection of different disciplines. So we are focused on unveiling the human past, uh, being it more distant, but also more recent human past. And the only way we can really do it is if we intersect the knowledge that comes from different disciplines. So I think that interdisciplinary uh, aspect of the research that we do is going to be essential across many fields in science. Of course, you can only be an expert <laughs> on a very specific topic, perhaps, uh, because these are complex subjects. But as much as you can, you know, uh, interacting with researchers from uh, related fields is the only way to come out with uh, meaningful interpretations for the data that you're analyzing. 
Um, and one example is going to be, I think, the explosion of ancient DNA studies on more historical time periods, where an integration of genetics with archaeology, anthropology, and linguistics, but also other fields like paleopathology, will allow us to understand the impacts of human migrations in historical times, being it the expansion of empires, the colonization of and the spread of European powers across different parts of the world, diseases associated with, with the movement of people, and the spread of languages, and so on. So the only way you can really do this in a meaningful way is by integrating different areas of research. So I think, you know, archaeogenetics is really an example of how collaborative research across different fields uh, can lead to some quite meaningful science in the search for our origins. That was João Teixeira discussing his article, Widespread Devisonian Ancestry in Island Southeast Asia, but no evidence of substantial superarchaic hominin admixture, which was published on March 22, 2021 in Nature Ecology and Evolution, along with multiple co-authors. You'll find a link to his paper at parsingscience.org e89, along with transcripts, bonus audio clips, and other materials that we discuss during the episode. If you want to catch up on recent episodes of Parsing Science that you may have missed, like episode 97, in which Alexander Pruzrin talked with us about how his science helped solve a real-life mystery, or the episode before that in which J.B. Lecca joined us to discuss his research on how monkeys have learned to rob tourists of everything from smartphones and flip-flops, then barter their return in exchange for food, then head over to parsingscience.org and check them out. Next time in episode 99 of Parsing Science, we'll talk with Erin Westgate from the University of Florida about her research into what makes thinking for pleasure pleasurable. We need to like rethink our model of why people, you know, why we see this trade-off between meaning and difficulty when it comes to thinking for pleasure, because it's not the case that thinking for pleasure is inherently meaningful. We hope that you'll join us again.